Hier komen we in vreemd. This is Red Flag Radio. My name is Ros Ward. I want to begin by acknowledging that we record this podcast on Aboriginal land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. My co-host, Liam Ward, and I are back after our little summer um, Mm. break. Did you have any fun times there, Liam? I thought you were going to ask, did I have a good break? And I would have said, yeah, I had two, actually. I have two fractures in my left wrist. Ah, uh, yeah, I could have made a joke about that. I missed my could have made that joke. Yeah. I've, I've, been, I've been milking that joke for a couple of weeks now. Yeah, he had a double break and, um, and it is totally fine to control the dials here as we record this episode. Uh, our first for 2021, and it's a great topic, and we've got a couple of uh, guests to help us um, discuss what is increasingly coming up as the question around um, the left, I mean, it's perennial, but um, in terms of the kind of um, interests of people who are getting involved in kind of anti-capitalist, radical politics, anarchism has always been one of those things, I think, uh, one of those um, theories and trends and fashion styles um, that, goes in and out, and I was one of the many people who thought anarchism was extremely cool when I first came across it in the sort of mid to late 1990s, Um, and still know people who um, may consider themselves anarchists and debate with them to this day. I've been debating about anarchism for a very long time, and so have the two people who are joining us kind of been researching this topic Emma and Kyle, welcome to Red Flag Radio. Thanks for having us, guys. Thanks, Rose. Um, So there's a lot to talk about, and I think we should just get into it because I'm sure people are listening to this wanting to get some of their questions answered. Um, And there's a lot of kind of um, overly shorthand explanations of the differences between anarchism and revolutionary socialism and why that matters or why some people argue that those differences don't matter. And so I think it really um, would do justice to the topic to um, try to uh, go into some of the history. We're going to talk about how the history of of the anarchist um, tendency movement, um, theoretical framework, if you like, uh, developed, where it emerged. We're going to talk about anarchism, what it means in practice. And, of course, Red Flag Radio is a revolutionary socialist podcast, so we're going to be talking about it from the perspective of revolutionary socialists. So, first of all, um, maybe, Emma, if I start with you, mm-hmm. like you've seen, you've met um, a lot of people who are kind of getting involved in politics, coming along to protests, who have said to you, you know, that maybe they, are, they feel like they might be attracted to anarchism or they might say that they are an anarchist. What do you think the basic appeal of these ideas is kind of in a nutshell to begin with? Yeah, I think to be generous um, to, you know, obviously a lot of people who get into these ideas, um, you know, especially when they're first getting involved in the left, often it's that it seems like the most radical you can be. 
Uh, and there's so much that's fucking wrong with the world that I think people often are searching for the most kind of radical transformative solutions. And on the surface of it, um, anarchism can seem to provide that. It can be seen like this rejection of all authority, of all states, all masters. Um, so I think that's the basic thing that uh, has always made anarchism popular and it still is today. I've got to confess, I uh, never found anarchism that appealing myself at a young age. I was like a feminist and then became a Marxist. But I know Kyle, uh, it's one of the uh, reasons I wanted him to do the podcast with me today is um, that he was a young teenage anarchist at the tender age of 16. So he might have more to say about what's appealing about these ideas. Mm. I have seen you in a black outfit too, Kyle. <laughs> oh, God, don't try too deep into my face. <laughs> it remains to this day, yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, tell us about what attracted you to anarchism and kind of where, where that came from. Yeah, I mean, I found at that age that it was definitely what Emma just sort of said, right? That there is some, so much that's actually wrong with the world, so much that is destructive and vile about capitalism, about states. I was particularly sort of radicalised by the Iraq War and all of the kind of horror of US imperialism in the early 2000s. Um, and the sheer kind of scale of the atrocities and the awfulness of the world really demands a radical response and a radical answer. But the main... Um, the main radical sort of alternative to that that you're presented with um, in school or in kind of popular consciousness is Marxism, um, but in its most Stalinized form, in the form of the horrible dictatorships that dominated uh, the Eastern Bloc, the Soviet Union, uh, for decades and decades, and that have quite rightly been discredited in the eyes of people who are progressives um, and leftists. And so the other alternative um, that you can discover with a little bit of digging on the internet, if you're really curious and if you're really determined to find something like that, is anarchism, which sets itself up, I think, very much in opposition to Marxism and as being its kind of um, main opponent on one level, uh, on the far left. And it doesn't just sort of set itself up as being an opponent, because there are plenty of things that set itself up as being opponents of Marxism, um, but it sets itself up as being more radical. Mm. That its critique of Marxism isn't that Marxism is too radical, as are some of the other critiques, mm. um, but that it's not radical enough and that it actually doesn't go far enough in its desire to transform the world. So I found that very, very appealing. Um, about anarchism. And I, I'm, I feel like I was a bit on the money as a teenager. Whenever I talk to people who are kind of influenced by anarchism these days, that tends to be kind of the thing that they find appealing mm -hmm. as well. I think, yeah. I, oh, sorry. No, go, Emma. Yeah, I just, I think um, another thing which Carl started to touch on is just that, you know, Marxism and socialist ideas have uh, been, well, on the one hand, really distorted by the Stalinism, basically, the rise of these extremely brutal dictatorships and um, bureaucracies that called themselves some form of communism. And so often anarchism seems like a rejection of that. You know, if only they hadn't been so bureaucratically minded and undemocratic Marxist, then they would have been able to avoid the um, inevitable decay uh, into this Stalinist uh, monstrosity. Uh, and on the other hand, there's, you know, a lot to be said for <laughs> like, there's been a lot of, you know, reformists, like social democratic, labor style parties that continuously just sell out the working class all throughout history. And this has often led people to uh, a radical rejection of that. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes that can lead towards a kind of um, the sort of anarchist ideas that are about all states are bad, all parties are bad, you know, all forms of leadership are terrible uh, inherently, rather than seeing the political content behind those failures. So I think that's another uh, form. Kyle and I were talking before about 
um, one, a very good quote by Lenin uh, where he says that anarchism is a kind of penalty for the opportunist sins of the workers' movement. The two monstrosities complemented each other. And so he's saying anarchism there is a monstrosity, but the other uh, monstrosity is opportunism by which he means, uh, you know, socialist organisations and leaders who only wanted to reform capitalism, make it slightly better, and in so doing sold out the, you know, revolutionary workers' movement time and time again. So, um, I think that's a <laughs> yeah good indication of some of the appeal of anarchism as well historically. And I think we'll get to more of that when we talk about sort of how anarchists are in practice because I think there is a, th- a thread through all of this that sort of is that whole two sides of the same coin of reformism and anarchism. Um, yeah, and, and people who uh, declare themselves to be anarchists often end up being the most committed reformists. But um, Luckily, Kyle didn't. So let's talk about <laughs> some of the specific kind of the core ideas of anarchism. And, and it can be a bit of a slippery um, subject because so many different interpretations, but like w- we won't use that excuse because people say that about Marxism as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing, and I think it would be the central thing for a lot of anarchists, and theoretically it's often a thing that's talked about the most or, or as the starting point, and that is on the question of authority, um, hierarchy, and um, questions of yeah freedom from authoritarianism. And the key difference that anarchists often point to um, between the, their own ideas and Marxism is uh, anarchism is anti-authoritarianism, anti-authority, and Marxism is um, pro-authority and hierarchy. So... Emma, do you want to talk about that and where that comes from? Yeah, well, I think you're right to say that this idea of kind of counterposing all authority to the rights and freedoms uh, of the individual is really at the heart of a lot of anarchist ideas. Um, And we should try and talk about some of the actual anarchists as well because they're often very popular um, amongst people who are getting involved in politics for the first time. So Bakunin, for example, uh, this was really part of his philosophy that the first thing that a revolution had to do was abolish all authority over the sovereign individual. That was kind of his uh, approach. And I think most anarchists would agree with something like that. Um, And I think that starting point is not a very good one, that the individual is king and reigns supreme, um, because it's actually the same exact starting point in a way that capitalism has, um, that radical liberalism has, that, um, you know, basically the rights of an individual should um, are more important than the, the rights of a you know, collective class or whatever. So it sees society much more in terms of individuals fighting against each other to have their freedoms and rights and liberties um, uh, carried out versus you know, the tyranny of the majority, the tyranny of the masses and stuff. I think it's not a good starting point. It's not the one that Marxists have at all. Um, Engels, when he was arguing against Bakunin, had a few arguments that I think are useful. Firstly, he said that, well, <laughs> the idea that abstractly all authority is terrible is pretty silly in practice. Like when you think about the scale of industrial production that capitalism has created, which has created all of the incredible wealth that we could actually, you know, share around and could uh, create a genuinely uh, democratic society on the basis of, that industrial production requires uh, the exercise of some authority. Um, so, for example, I'm a train driver and it would be pretty absurd to say that you could run a 
a railway without any authority, and it's actually an example that Engels himself used against Bakunin, like how would you stop trains from crashing into each other? Well, you have signalers who are an authority who tell the trains when they can and can't go, um, and you have conductors who carry all of that out. So, and there's plenty of examples. So, obviously, this kind of <laughs> this just abstract theoretical rejection of authority is not super useful. Um, there's other examples as well, like the exercise of workers' power, which I think should be what we're for, like ordinary people fighting back against the horrors of the system. This always requires the exercise of some kind of authority. Like if workers are on strike and they form a picket line, well, what is a picket line except the workers themselves deciding who can and can't come into their workplace. It's uh, a total imposition on the rights of the scab to scab, <laughs> the rights for them to go about their, you know, to, to exercise their own individual liberties and so on. But this is something that the left almost universally supports, although actually, interestingly, Proudhon, for that exact reason, hated the workers' movement and hated strikes and thought they were all reactionary and so on. But so, you know, this, this kind of just abstract rejection of, of all authority is not very useful um, Engels goes on to say that the most authoritarian thing in the world in many ways is a revolution. He doesn't, he's kind of joking when he says that. Obviously, it's not, it's also the most liberatory and democratic thing, but he's saying it is the exercise of, uh, the, of democratic collective workers' power against their oppressors. You know, this is not some just peaceful process that uh, preserves purely the individual rights of the capitalists, the individual right to exploit or to own property. We actually want to abolish that. So, again, that gives you some of a sense. This is not a good framework for, um, for understanding how society works and what are the strategies we need to liberate uh, humanity. And it does just, um, yeah, it has that sort of utopianism, which is why I think, you know, if you read angles about it, he just sounds so frustrated because it isn't really based on looking at the world in a material way, which is what sort of angles particularly, but Marx obviously um, was interested in doing going, well, what actually does the world look like? How do things operate and how could that be different? And what do we actually need to do to change things rather than having a series of abstract kind of things that you're opposed to, like, mm. you know, authority, no authority. Well, We'll get to that later in terms of what that then looks like mm. um, when you try to put it into practice. But to go on to another issue, um, in terms of then a strategy for change, if if anarchists are um, kind of opposed to the authority of the mass of people, which you know was coined the dictatorship of the proletariat, but I always find that a phrase that uh, you kind of have to then explain to people because they hear the word dictatorship and they think of something awful. But the idea that if Marxism is about um, the working class changing the world and doing so themselves as a collective class, then what's the alternative within anarchism if they're opposed to that, the mass of people um, leading change and being organised democratically like that? Kyle, do you want to deal with that one? Well, I mean, I think that there are a whole series of different alternatives that are offered by anarchism. Um, and that, I mean, for one thing, part of the appeal of anarchism for somebody who's a bit left-wing is actually that there are varieties of anarchism that at least uh, sort of superficially look, them, look to the working class as being the real agent of change, even though it still comes with a bunch of the sort of general problems of anarchism and the attitudes to authority. Um, it does sort of see 
some variety of mass transformation um, and democratic mass transformation, revolutionary mass transformation as being its goal. Um, but I think that there are a whole series of other alternatives that are on offer within anarchism. And it's, it's a quite broad tradition, almost as many anarchisms as there are anarchists. Um, but the kind of central tenets that we've been talking about, um, the question of authority, some of the other questions we'll be talking about in a bit, I think there's a series of logical flow-ons to all of that. Um, a tendency towards a kind of uh, individualist sort of lifestyle politics, for example, um, that a certain purism um, becomes part of the way that you can counterpose yourself to the nasty sort of um, compromising conservative, both sort of broader general world and also leadership of the workers movement is that you have these kind of pure principles yourself that you then carry out effectively in your kind of personal relationships and your living arrangements. So you think of kind of squats, communes, um, these kind of attempts to sort of remove yourself from the system rather than uh, particularly challenge it uh, in this mass way. And it can seem very, um, I think, it, it can be very sort of morally fulfilling on one level to do that, that you seem like you're not participating in this kind of awful uh, fucked society that does have all of these kind of dehumanizing tendencies and all of these destructive impulses built into it. Um, but it ultimately just leaves the thing, I think, uh, resting effectively unchallenged as a result of that. It's not like any squat or commune has ever really seriously undermined the market economy, the power of the state, uh, anything like that, even a network of communes and squats, uh, mm -hmm. I don't think could actually effectively do that. Um, but there are other forms of that kind of individualist uh, purism that comes through as well, like um, terrorism has been a fairly uh, regular recourse uh, for anarchism. Um, and even just like quite sort of smaller versions of it where you are willing to sort of, uh, you know, like one version that I encountered a lot while I was living in Perth um, was anarchists who were willing to chain themselves to trees down in forests that nobody had heard of in protests that only the three local farmers uh, would even have heard of through the media um, and see themselves as being kind of uh, seriously challenging uh, the diktats of the society through that. I think that sort of thing um, tends to flow, I think, fairly logically from the central precepts of their politics. Our comrades across the world. Emma, you're, I was going to bring up your namesake, famous anarchist. You weren't yes. named after Emma Goldman, were you? She's the worst. Were you really? Oh. No, of course not. No, um, I was going to say that would be quite crazy. But no, yeah, no. okay. So uh, I mean, it was Emma Goldman is such a hero. Of girls in Australia, <laughs> she was such a hero, though, in terms of, and she still is the name that people will um, bring up if you say, "Well, oh, you know, who have you read as an anarchist, or mm. you know, what 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 kind of um, theoretical." Leadership do you look to except you don't because you, you're against authority. So why read anything to tell you what to do? But Emma Goldman um, is definitely a hero of the anarchist movement. So I wanted to talk a bit in particular uh, about her attitude towards the mass of ordinary people because it's quite unbelievably um, dismissive when you start looking at it mm. a bit closer. Do you want to talk about that yeah. for, for a minute? Yeah, when you actually read some of the stuff she wrote, it's pretty disgraceful. You'd have to hope that most people who say they really like and are inspired by Emma Goldman haven't read this stuff. They've just read Emma, um, yeah. Hopefully, yeah, and they just think, oh, she's a cool American woman, anarchist, whatever. But, um, like, 
I think it tells you a lot about, obviously, there's anarchists who are better than her on this question, but there is, because of the things we talked about before, that individualism being the starting point, seeing the advent of mass industrial production and, in a way, the working class as being kind of this ill of society that has taken us away from a time where everybody was just a free individual who, like, made some handicrafts and then bartered them with other people, you know. This is often this kind of romantic idea of what um, even feudal society used to be like, uh, which Emma and Bakunin and others were really into. Um, and so there's this real disdain for the masses generally and the working class in particular. Um, if I can quote Emma, because I just think you do need to hear it to believe it. She said, I therefore believe with Emerson that the masses are crude, lame, pernicious in their demands and influence and need not to be flattered, but to be schooled. I wish not to concede anything to them, but to drill, divide and break them up and draw individuals out of them. Masses, the calamity are the masses. I do not wish any mass at all. Um, so, and that's from a, a book that she actually wrote in 1917, you know, on when the like, Russian Revolution was happening and masses of people, peasants and workers, soldiers were rising up against um, the Tsarist dictatorship in Russia. So really at odds, I think, with what most of the socialist tradition thought about the masses of people, which was that they could be active uh, participants in their own emancipation. You know, Marx's classic thing that um, you know, we need the self-emancipation of the working class, I think was something that really didn't appeal to her at all. And the practical strategies that come out of that, of a lot of anarchists, including Emma Goldman, are what you would imagine, very elitist, like let's have a secret little cabal that carries out random terrorist attacks against um, the rich and powerful or whatever. Um, you know, one of the really uh, terrible examples that Goldman herself was involved in was uh, her and her partner, planning the assassination of a plant manager in a strike in Pittsburgh in 1892. Um, they her partner tried to kill this guy, shot at him, the bullet missed, uh, and the only real result of that was not that, you know, <laughs> that he was a wonderful martyr for the movement or that they won the strike or something. It was the absolute decimation of the strike because people were totally demoralized, attacked by the press and by the um, the capitalist class and so on. So those like supposedly romantic, heroic um, actions of individuals often are just about trying to substitute for the, you know, democratically decided actions of thousands of people, uh, which is what really should have happened in that strike. So, yeah, again, Obviously, Emma's, I think she's one of the worst, actually, in terms of her utter disdain for the masses of people. But that is a, a key part of the anarchist um, kind of mantra. Like, I, one of the things we really noticed, and I'm sure you guys did as well, Liam and Roz, in the Occupy movement was just how readily anarchists who were involved in it were dismissive of masses of people like, oh, these sheeple, they just want to shop, they just want to go to work, they're part of the problem, they're part of the system, which again is so at odds with the Marxist vision of, of humanity, which is that it's actually the fact that we are the exploited who have to work to keep capitalism ticking over, that's what gives us power, that's what gives us uh, the, you know, the interest to overthrow capitalism, not that that's some weakness of ours or, you know, that uh, makes the masses part of the problem. And one of the um, anarchist slogans in the Occupy movement was not we are the 99% but we are the 
what what was it? Eighty nine percent. Eleven percent of people are union members and they're not yeah. part of that mass of people because they're in these authoritarian organizations. Like that's how much yeah, they it's just atrocious. Work. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just remember the sneering, like, because we were in these squares, you know, and there'd be, like, shoppers going past because you're in the middle of a square in a city. People are buying stuff. And the sneering attitude towards those people, like, these are the people you should be trying to win over in some ways, you know, ordinary people going about their daily business, win them over to some left-wing critique of the system. But instead, there was just a total sneering dismissiveness towards them. Yeah. Okay, so we've got... This anti-authoritarianism um, that's not really. And then we've got um, the question of, you know, how do you create change and it's not the mass of people, it's like an elite group. And that's the Bakunin kind of invisible group um, that should just use any means to kind of um, keep themselves secret and, you know, basically go around telling people what to do. But we'll, we'll get to that debate. And then I think the other main issue that anarchists will raise and will say that this is the difference between anarchism and Marxism is the question of the state. And that, again, it springs um, and it feeds back into those two other issues. But, Kyle, can we talk about um, that difference? Like they say Marxists uh, just want to take over the state. They love the authoritarianism of it. They love the hierarchies. But actually, anarchists are for smashing the state, and that's a key difference. So, let's talk about that. Um, Kyle, do you want to start by saying whether you think that is a fair representation of the positions? Well, no, I don't. Surprisingly, um, I actually think that. Well, I mean, on one level, it obviously reflects something about the world that we live in, right? That there are large organisations that have called themselves. Marxists that actually have had this project of just kind of taking over states and using them for their own purposes, whether that be the old communist parties um, and even some of the kind of original social democratic reformist parties, um, particularly in Europe, that call themselves Marxist uh, in their origins. I think there is a reality of some strands of a political thought that calls itself Marxist that does just want to kind of take over these hierarchies, take over the state in particular, and use it to its own ends. But I don't think that that's a fair characterization of Marxism itself. And I don't think that's a fair characterization, particularly uh, of anything that kind of consistently flows from Marx and Engels' own thought um, and their own kind of understanding of the world. They are actually extremely hostile to the state. They're extremely hostile uh, to hierarchy in general, not just kind of questions of ownership or anything like that. Um, They wanted to create a society that was classless, free, and stateless. They talked about their hostility to the state fairly frequently, in fact. Um, I think that it's a bit of a mischaracterization uh, and a slander on the part of the anarchists in the sense that not only do they sort of, I think, are in a better position to understand all of this, um, but that they uh, try to present themselves as just being the kind of ones who their kind of hostility to the state is the only form of it. And it's just really not true. Yeah, if I can jump yeah, in there, Ross. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's really true. Like uh, with the best of anarchists, we share a real desire to smash the state, um, abolish all state authority. But the thing is like we see that as being connected to a process of destroying classes 
destroying the whole basis of the state. And that's the problem with anarchists, I think, is they don't really get what why states exist. They know they're against them. They're against all authority, right? So anything that looks centralized, hierarchical, bureaucratic, or whatever, as states are, particularly capitalist states, they're against. But they're equally against workers' states and forms of workers' power that are democratic, but maybe centralized, highly organized or whatever. So I think there's, they don't really get that states ha- and authority generally, like we said before, has a content to it, has a class content perhaps. Um, you know, so like for example, the reason why the capitalist state does all of the things that it does is not just for fun because the people that run it are psychopaths or whatever. They just like having a police force that kills black people. They just like having uh, a prison system and so on. It's because those are all absolutely necessary features for a state to maintain the rule of uh, the private property capitalists over the masses of people. They need all of those institutions to uh, maintain their coercion of the working class. So, um, so that's why we're against capitalist states. But it's also like one of the key questions for us, and I think anarchists should pay more heed to this question, is how do you smash the state if you're for that? It's not enough to just say you're for it. You have to have an actual realistic strategy for how that happens. Of course, we don't think that being realistic means oh, just saying you're going to take over the state through a democratic election. We understand that the state isn't truly democratic. It can't be reformed by just whatever, even having a socialist party that wins an election or something. But there has to be a way to actually smash it. Um, the anarchists usually leave that the solution to that a bit blank. Marxists say that the only force in society capable of overthrowing the state and capitalism is the working class. So the workers need to be organised. They need to have their own workers' councils. They need to have their own way of asserting actually a centralised authority over the rest of society. They have to be able to say, we're going to take all the stuff that the capitalists have uh, and control it ourselves. Every bank, every you know workplace, every part of industry is going to be controlled by the masses of people. We're going to stop the, the ruling class from trying to destroy us when we have a revolution. You know, that has to be organised and centrally coordinated and stuff as well. So, when you start to actually talk about what it means to smash the state, you have to counterpose it to real workers' power. That's what Marxists say, like that's what we mean when we say a workers' state. But what we think that that would actually be able to achieve is the destruction of all states forever, eventually. It would wither away was the... Um, the probably famous lines that uh, Engels and Marx used to describe this process, but that once you have actually destroyed capitalism, once the capitalist class are no longer trying to organise armies to destroy you or whatever, you can, um, you know, have a society in which the state no longer has to centrally organise things and there is more of um, the kind of, you know, anarcho-communist utopia that both anarchists and Marxists, I think, envisage uh, society being like after a successful revolution. But I think we have much more of an understanding of what it takes to get there. Mm. And that that, that endpoint is actually a, a, the truest sense of, you know, being free or like liberation or the, the kind of ideals of anarchism purportedly just through some um, vision of smashing the state and then we're all free. It's like, well, yeah. the other part of that process that Marx um, reflected on 
from his experience of seeing revolutions start to unfold in Europe was the fact that um, there's an educational uh, um, aspect to the process of revolution in and of itself that the mass of ordinary people have to be highly organized. They ha- It has to necessarily be democratic or it doesn't work, much like the example of the strike that you used before as a kind of very small-scale um yeah, case study of why you need coordination, you need some degree of discipline on a strike, you know, you need to be making democratic agreements with each other and you're trying to exert your authority collectively over the people who run, manage, own your workplace in the process of that strike. So and with the aim of, you know, being in a better situation but also being more able to organise in those collective and democratic um, and equal ways, which anarchism just has a very big gap um, at that point of how will people be able to um, free themselves of all of the disgusting ideas that capitalism has to continually impose on people in order for Mm. them to, you know, not resist the system. Like what do you do with all of that stuff, the muck of ages as Marx called Mm. it, of course. So in terms of organisational stuff, if you are against authority, um, if you're against hierarchy, then most anarchists are against the idea of kind of um, party organisations. They're certainly very hostile to the idea of a vanguard party or a Leninist-type party against the Bolsheviks. and we don't have time to do a, a whole thing about the Russian Revolution. But in terms of um, democracy, like what was your experience, Kyle, in in working with anarchists around decision-making and, um, you know, how you can see the difference, I guess, between socialist organising and anarchist organising in terms of um, democracy, decision-making, whether you need organisations or not? Uh, well, first of all, I would say that I didn't have very much contact with actual anarchist organizations. They um, are a little bit sort of rare on the ground in a way. They tend to explode for a whole series of different reasons. Um, I think that one of them is that attempting to sort of navigate that question of you can't have an authority, but at the same time you have to have some kind of coherent organization, some ability to direct your political will and try to make it happen in the world. Um, that this creates a whole series of sort of intractable problems for anarchism. So one of the key ways that um, I have encountered it before is in the Occupy movement. Um, when it took off in little old Perth, again, in WA, uh, and that it kind of uh, absorbed from the world movement a real obsession with consensus decision-making, where the whole idea is that rather than there being a kind of democratic vote about what it is that you would want to do at any given time for the movement, Um, that everybody effectively has to agree before any actual action can be taken, Um, which I think has a kind of um, anti-organizational bent to it, that it's not about people, any kind of imposition of authority in the sense that people uh, may disagree with the decision, but they have to go along with it because in democratic decision-making, at least, um, that is the will of the majority and that is the will of what most people want to do. Um, There's no sense of that. There's just this sense that everybody kind of just agrees and gets along um, and each sort of 
uh, you know, there's no kind of conflict of each of these sort of special sovereign individuals um, in what they're in what they're doing from there on. Um, the problem with that, though, is that, and this is often the problem with anarchist organizing, um, is that the kind of leadership and the kind of hierarchy and structure um, and authority that it's attempting to avoid um, tends to kind of creep back in through the back door. So with consensus decision making, for example, um, it tends to be the case that if you're a particularly sort of determined vocal minority um, and you have a lot of time on your hands and you have a little bit more kind of experience in political argument or any of these kinds of advantages that an individual can fairly easily accrue and that I think quite rightly make people leading and give people a certain authority um, within a movement. Well, in this kind of framework, which is supposedly trying to avoid the kind of all-powerful control that these kinds of people can have, um, they can actually effectively block and railroad any sort of decision that they don't like. They can just stubbornly refuse to go along with the rest of everybody else um, for as long as they need to, to just kind of wear people down um, to agreeing with their position. And this is just kind of one example of the way that anarchists try to sort of straddle that contradiction between the fact that they have these quite purist sort of hostility to authority and leadership and hierarchy and structure in principle, but that they also, you know, they proclaim to be radicals. They want to do something about the injustices of the world uh, in a real sense. Um, and they have to be a part of that world in order to do it. Um, and trying to sort of straddle that contradiction with a series of, I think, quite fanciful sort of um, solutions like consensus decision making, um, they end up getting themselves in all sorts of binds like that. Um, and they actually, yeah, I just actually think either make themselves quite uh, ineffectual or just end up actually replicating a bunch of the problems that they see in kind of bureaucratic and mass political sort of organizations that they critique. Um, but just kind of slapping a different label on it, not calling it leadership, even though it actually is leadership, not calling it mm. the control of a minority, even though it actually is the control of a minority. They call it consensus instead, mm. um, whatever else. There's just, I think, boundless examples of that sort of thing playing out in anarchist organization um, over and over again. Mm. It's just unofficial. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the unofficial, unaffected, unaccountable leadership. But, but mm. we're not leaders because I'm not called the leader. I'm not called, we're not called the branch committee. So we're not. A hierarchy, mm. but we are the people who pick pick the agenda for meetings and tell people what to read and what to think. But we're not leadership. Like it, it does. Yeah. It, it just is very frustrating because it does come down to a lot of language and discourse. And again, I think that idea of um, you know, an idealist philosophical way of thinking rather than a materialist mm. one, because you know, at, at Occupy, one of the things that was quite obvious was that the people who were able to grind, grind out the consensus had the time. They didn't have to go and work nine to five. They they were able to be there the whole time. Mm. You know, they didn't have um, anyone else that they were responsible for in their lives and they had the resources to continue to, you know, be there. So in a sense they're privileged in the real sense of, you know, class privilege often um, and could – wield that as a way to make themselves an unofficial leader so I'm sure you've seen that as well mm. Emma yep. yeah and I think the another point that kind of flows from this is like it's not just how ineffective it is and which we really experienced in Occupy because the other thing is like not just that there's an un unelected and unaccountable leadership that does form and you can't you literally can't hold them to account because if they you know, if a decision is made uh, or or rather a decision is blocked from being made because of their actions, 
they're not really responsible for it. You can't have another election or something and um, and kick them out or something. So um, this kind of thing comes up over and over again. But also it is really ineffective. It's very difficult for a large movement of people to carry out what they overall want to do and what is in their interests to do uh, unless they have majority rule democracy, which sounds like a f- obvious thing. I think it is obvious to most normal people. We're for majority rule, <laughs> actually. Like we're for decisions being made by a majority and then they're carried out um, and that a minority of people or even one individual who, you know, in the case of Occupy often were like police provocateurs or whatever, that someone like that shouldn't be able to block uh, a majority from from doing something. So it does just make them, you know, make these movements really ineffectual and unable to decide what to do, which is not what you need when you're trying to respond to, like we were in Occupy, police violence, you know, um, trying to get more and more people involved in the movement. These sorts of things are things that require actual decisions to be made. But the other point which I think flows from that is that the workers' movement generally needs this form of majority rule, actual democracy, accountable leaderships, elections as well uh, of delegates, people who are recallable if you decide that they haven't carried out uh, what they were elected to carry out. That is a time-honoured and I think proud tradition of the workers' movement that it's always uh, kind of operated in that way. And it's something that we need. If we, if you're actually talking about the only power that workers have is a collective one, we think that it's possible for them to consciously decide to overthrow capitalism. That requires, not just at that moment, but also through all of their struggles against the system, against their bosses, against the police, that they're able to make collective decisions and be held to them. Like uh, Going back to the strike example, if you don't have a majority of people who are f- who vote to go on strike, then you're not going to have a strike, are you? <laughs> you can't have a minority who um, carry out some something on, uh, you know, some action on behalf of uh, the whole working yeah, class. You obviously so. haven't seen the NTU in action. <laughs> <laughs> you can, but it's usually bad, isn't it? It's, it's usually very strike. moderate. <laughs> yeah, I think, and it's something Kyle and I were talking about earlier today when we were preparing for this. It's just like for anything radical to happen I think a lot of the time there has to be um, workers have to be actually one to it like really convinced of it themselves and that means a majority being built up whether that's in a strike committee or in a Soviet that is going to take power or something it has to be a majority that comes to uh, the conclusion that they will actually do something radical because it's not just about passive support for something radical happening in your name. It's not just about voting for someone passively who might do something good for you. It's about you doing it yourself. Um, again, it comes all of it, I think, for us comes back to that thing about we're for the self-emancipation of the working class. That requires all of these things we've talked about, and that's something that largely anarchists are not for. Okay, we're going to pause there because this is a two-part special on anarchism, and we'll be back in episode two um, to pick up the topic of the kind of historical examples of anarchism um, theory tested in practice. So come back for episode two. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. Thanks very much, Emma and Kyle. And we look forward to speaking to you again on part two. This is Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs>